Well, thanks, everyone. Um, really great to see all of you, most of whom I don't know and you don't know me. Uh, this might be a new experience for some of you. And I want to start off by saying this morning, uh, congratulations to all of you who are here. You guys are like church warriors. It is Memorial Day weekend, and you're here at church. So good for you. Uh, I like this, girl. You guys are responsive. This is nice. Um, someone this morning told me, if you, know, if you really want to get under Dirk's skin, try to get people talking to you, right, when you're preaching and stuff. So that's good. You guys just keep, keep talking. I was actually at a conference recently, and this guy gets up, and he's like, I'm a hollerback preacher. You got to holler back when I talk to you. So listen, I'm not from the South, so I don't know if I can get away with that. Um, Anyway, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was, uh, I was here on staff um, from before Encounter began to when we were at the school to when we moved in here. Um, if you want to know some of the things that I did, I literally poured like blood and sweat in this place. Um, I built the stage that I'm standing on today. Uh, so I have a deep, deep love and appreciation for this church. Um, I have a lot of like like life poured into this place. And so it's really cool to be back and see a ton of people that I don't know because that means that God is doing some cool work here. And uh, the other thing is if you're a guest today and this goes poorly, I'm sorry, Dirk will be back next week. It'll be a lot better. Uh, if it goes good today, um, you know, Dirk will be back next week and it'll be even better. So either way, uh, if you're a guest today, keep coming back. Uh, we'd love to have you here. Um, so there's a lot of things I could tell you about Dirk, but I actually just watched the live stream of him preaching at my church this morning, and he said nice things about me, so I'm not going to say anything bad about him this time around. Uh, so enough of the introductions. Let me uh, open us up by uh, going to prayer. So would you pray with me? God, as we come into this moment in this time of this worship service, um, God, may we approach this time with in anticipation that you are here, that you have set this place um, to be ready for us to come in to receive the word that you have to bring um, for our ears and for our lives and for our purposes. And God, a lot of us, we come in from just way different spots in life. And some of us, um, we're here this morning and we're excited to be here and we're assured of who you are and what you're doing in our lives. And so we are ready to know what it is that you have to say to us today. And uh, God, there are those of us who aren't sure where we're at and weren't sure who you are or maybe what you're all about. And God, I would just pray that in whatever approach we come into this place today, that maybe we would have the willingness to want to learn who your son Jesus Christ is and to maybe take that step of deeper or new belief that he is the one who changes and transforms our lives. And so, God, would you assure us today that this moment is not wasted and that you are working powerfully in it. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So I, to this very day, absolutely loathe having to pick a place to sit when I'm carrying a tray of food. Like I hated it in high school. I hated it in college. I hated it at family events. I hated it at church potlucks. Anytime I got to like carry a tray of food and find a place to sit, it's like the worst thing in the world. Now, it's gotten exponentially better um, once I got married. And even better, I have two kids so it's really awesome right now because, for one, like, I always have an entourage with me. Like, that's, that's sweet. Like, there's these people that come with me all the time. We're following my wife, which is cool. <laughs> but then the other thing is, like, it doesn't matter where we sit anymore. I don't care who's around me or who's going to sit at the table with me because it's all about getting food in my children's mouth and not all over everything around us. 
So it's not so bad. But if I'm ever flying solo and I happen to be in this situation where I have to get like a tray of food and then walk into an area where there are tables or places to sit, it's like the worst thing in the world. I would rather just go eat by myself in the bathroom than have to pick a spot to sit. And I, and I say that this is such a terrible thing because I think if you are if you're empathizing with me this morning, this moment where you have a tray of food and you have to find a place to sit, it's like the most acute and direct place to feel the instant sting of rejection in your life. Because here you are, and you might have been like going through this line, and then you go and you sit down, and you're just like looking around and begging and pleading for someone to come sit next to you to wipe off the instant sting of rejection off your face. And then it gets sometimes really weird because like you're going through the line, and you're talking to the person behind you or whatever else, and then you go and you sit at your table, and the person you're talking to, they go sit somewhere else. And you're like, what's up with that? Or you walk into this room with this tray of food, and uh, you see someone else who's sitting by themselves, and the sting of rejection's all on their face, right? And they look so sad. And you're like, well, maybe there's a reason why they're sitting by themselves, and maybe there's a reason why people aren't buying this, so I'm just going to go sit over here, and now there are two people with rejection all over their face and super sad because no one is sitting next to them. Like, to this day, I hate having to pick a place to sit when I'm carrying a tray of food. And friends, what I want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk to you about rejection. I want to talk to you about rejection. And the, the really hard thing about talking about rejection in a 30-minute time slot is that rejection is typically something that goes really down deep in our lives. And oftentimes it's something that we've kind of buried down deep and we're not sure if we ever want to bring that up again. Because a lot of times there are rejection events that happen like when we are kids, maybe from our parents or by someone else. And there's these sort of traumatized moments in our lives that we've kind of like, you know, I've compartmentalized it, I've pushed it down here and I don't really want to bring that back up because I'm not sure what it's going to happen if it comes back up. And I'm not really sure if I'm prepared to deal with it if it did. You know, some of us, we know the sting of rejection if we're in the dating world, right? And, uh, some of us, if you're married, you know what the sting of rejection can feel like. If you're a parent, you understand what this can feel like. Because in the dating world, you might know or maybe you remember what it's like to have your heart broken. And this person just kind of like, throws you by the wayside and rips your heart out and stomps it on the ground and walks away. Sometimes in marriages, you get to these moments where it's like, I'm trying to like pour myself out and show my partner that I love and care for them, but I'm not getting anything in return. And it seems like the harder I try, the more they're pushing away from me. Parents, you, you know this, especially as your kids get a little bit older, where, where the hardness of raising kids moves from physical hardness into emotional hardness. And it's like, it's like your kids, they get to this point where sometimes they're yelling at you, like, you make my life miserable, and why do you have to be like this? And as a parent, you take all of that on. And there's probably people in this room, we come from, like, situations in our family life where, like, we're estranged from parents or someone in our family has left and we don't talk to them or see them anymore. And the, this rejection all comes along with that. And, you know, the, the thing is, like, rejection runs really, really deep in our lives. But I also believe that, that there is a God who can come in and take these incredible deep cuts of rejection 
And that if we're willing to allow him to come into those places and minister into those places in our lives, he can do an incredible work of spiritual renovation. That God can take some of these traumatic moments that we have experienced and he can do an incredible work of spiritual transformation through them. And so I want to talk about that stuff today. And I want to use a story out of the Old Testament. It's out of the book of 1 Kings about a prophet named Elijah. And I just want to read for you this story because I want you to kind of see the full effect of this. This story about the rejection that Elijah faces and what God does in order to do a work of spiritual transformation and spiritual renovation for him. And talk about what that means for us. So I want you to listen to this story. It's 1 Kings chapter 19, and it's the first 18 verses. Scripture says this, Now Ahab told Jezebel, there's a king and a queen, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and he sat down under and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him again and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with a sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said, I want you to go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave and a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophets. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And so as we talk about rejection today, I want to talk about kind of three movements that we learn about rejection in this story. And if it's okay with you, I'm just going to give you all three points up front. So if you like just need to take like a worship folder home and 
write down the three points and leave. You do what you got to do. But here they are. The first, uh, rejection reveals. It's kind of the first uh, 10 verses of the story. The second thing is that rejection refines. And that's verses 11 through 14 in the story. And finally, uh, rejection can be redirected. It's verses 15 through 18, in case you want to take this and study it at home some more later. So uh, let's start off. Rejection reveals. What does rejection reveal? If you are familiar at all with the life of Elijah the prophet, you might know that this particular story comes right after Elijah has just had an epic showdown on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. And Elijah had challenged the prophets of Baal to determine who's the one true God of Israel. Is it the Lord who it's supposed to be? Or are they going to keep worshiping these false gods? And so the showdown was to say, we're going to build two altars with a sacrifice on them. And whichever God sends down fire, this is the God who is the one true God of Israel. And so Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 18 is like, God, my prayer is that the people would see your mighty power and your mighty actions. And when you show up in that way, the people are going to turn their lives back to you. And of course, God doesn't disappoint. God like flexes his mighty arms of power and he sends down this all-consuming fire from heaven. Uh, the prophets of Baal, nothing happens. And Elijah's like making fun of them. Like maybe he's on vacation or maybe he's impotent or maybe he's hard of hearing, right? But God sends down a fireball. Like it's literally lit. Takes up everything. Fire, stones, water, the whole thing. It's all gone. And so at the end of the story, the people, they began to chant, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In the original Hebrew, which they would have been chanting, they were saying, Eli, Yahu, Eli, Yahu. Or in English, we would say, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. So they're chanting for the Lord at the end of this. But then here we are just a few verses later, and Elijah is on the run for his life. Because evidently the Lord flexing his arms and the mighty display of power isn't actually enough for the people to like change their behaviors. It's not enough for them to like turn back and make the Lord their true God, which really then begs the question, at the end of the Mount Carmel incident, are the people really chanting the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God? Or at that moment, are they just saying like, Elijah, Elijah, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. What are they really chanting for? And it seems to me that if you look at 1 Kings 18 and 19, they begin to reveal something about the nature of humanity, the nature of people in relation to the mighty, visible, sometimes miraculous displays of God in the world. And what it really kind of reveals to us is that God's like actions, his power, his mighty displays, the miraculous ways that he moves, these aren't in and of themselves the things that will actually change and transform a person's heart. Because if you look throughout Scripture, we see how often we as people like forget what God has done. You look at the pages of Scripture and God is saying, or God is reminding people through his prophets, remember what I did, remember when I led you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, remember, remember, remember. If you look at the life of Jesus in the New Testament, when Jesus is doing miracles, does it convert thousands of people? No, the more miracles he does, the more hardened people get to him. And so what you see is that the mighty 
actions, the power, the miraculous events of God usually aren't the things that actually transform people's hearts and lives for good. So the people in the story, they don't turn back to God. And the queen in the story, Queen Jezebel, she puts out this death warrant for Elijah's life. And he goes on the run. And he's on the run because, well, the people, they've rejected God. And the people have in turn then rejected God's prophet. They have rejected Elijah. And for today's purposes, I want to talk about this notion of rejection. We're going to call it the Jezebel effect. This is the, the Jezebel effect. And this is what the Jezebel effect does in our lives. It reveals the way that we respond to rejection. And there are kind of three responses to the Jezebel effect in our lives. And the first one is that when the Jezebel effect comes our way, um, some of us, we have a desire for retaliation. You hurt me, and so I want to inflict an equal amount of hurt or more on you because of what you did to me. Or, in the case of when it goes really sideways, someone inflicted hurt or rejection on me, and I'm going to go take that out on someone else. We retaliate. The second way that most people will respond to rejection is that we, we tend to run away from the source of where that rejection came from. And that's uh, what Elijah's doing here, right? He's running as far away as he can possibly get from the source of this rejection. And this is what most well-adjusted human beings do as well. Like, we run away from this thing. We run away. We retreat. We get as far away from it as possible. And, and typically, we'll say things like, you know what? I'm done putting myself out there, right? I, I'm tired of getting burned. I'm tired of getting pushed away. I'm tired of getting rejected. Like, that's it. I'm out. I, I, I'm, I'm done. We go for a long run in the other direction, which is literally what Elijah does in the story. He takes a run as far south away from Queen Jezebel as he can possibly get, and he goes into hiding. And in his running, Elijah says that he would prefer to live under the shadow of rejection his entire life than have to go deal with it face to face again. Right? The story says that he sits underneath of a broom tree and then he tells God, I've had enough. I'm tapping out. That's it. I'm done. I've ran away. That's it. And so when rejection comes our way, the thing is you can choose to live in the shadow of that rejection for the rest of your life. Right? You can kind of go the way of Elijah, sit underneath the shade of that broom tree and just let that rejection hang. Right? You can let this rejection like, instill this deep pain that you're never able to fully deal with in your life. You can choose to run away and, and go like, to a really dark place and stay there. In fact, that's what Elijah does. He runs as far away as he can get. And by the time you get to verse 9, you read that he goes into a cave to spend the night. He runs as far away as he can get. And he goes deep into the darkest place that he can find. So typically, rejection, reveals our re or rejection can reveal how we respond to it, and we can run from it, we can retaliate, but I think there's a third way as well. And that third way is that rejection can actually be a path forward to uh, a path for redemption in our lives. Rejection at its core, it reveals the way that we're going to respond to other people, and it actually reveals how we respond to God when we face it. So we can run from it, we can retaliate about it, or... Or we might be able to begin to believe that in this mess, in this pain, in this hurt, 
God can actually take that and do something to transform it for his purposes for our lives. Now, if I were you sitting out there this morning and you're dealing with some rejection in your life and maybe that, you know, that sting is starting to come up, you know, I might say something like, I doubt it, right? I just don't know if I can believe that, that there is some sort of pathway to transformation out of all of this pain that I'm feeling. And like, I get it, right? Like, I get how the doubt can set in. But what if for today's purposes, we just opened ourselves up to the possibility the very possibility that maybe there is a God who, if we let him into that pain, can go deep down to where that rejection has its source. And that he can minister to us in that place and that he can use that and he can transform it for a path to redemption because he has more purpose for you than the pain of that rejection. That there is more to life that he wants you to experience than sitting in the shadow or hiding in the dark place that rejection pours over our lives. What if today we opened ourselves up to that possibility that out of the pain there can be a pathway for progress? And if we can begin to open ourselves up to that possibility, then I think what you can begin to see is that rejection can actually be a time of great spiritual refinement in our lives. We're going to start to see the way that rejection refines. So in the story, Elijah, he's hiding out in this cave, in this dark area on Mount Horeb, and God comes to him and uh, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Like, what, what gives? What are you doing here? And Elijah responds, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites. They have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to do the same thing to me. Like, he's unloading his complaint. In writing about the theme of rejection, the author, Brene Brown, um, she, she said this. She says, The three most dangerous stories we make up are the narratives that diminish our lovability, our divinity, and our creativity. And in Elijah's complaint, you see all of those things being voiced. The people don't want me. God, I don't think I can continue doing your work. And I don't have what it takes. Let's just end it. All three of those stories come out. And all three of these narratives, these are the lies that the Jezebel effect wants to tell us as well. Right? These voices come into our head. We, we know these lies. These lies that say, well, you must not be lovable because you're certainly not likable. <laughs> That's why they left you. You're not likable, so you're certainly not lovable. You might hear the voice that says, you're not worth anything. Can you, that happened in your life? You, you, there's no purpose. There's, you don't have any worth. You think you're made in the image of God with that in your past? Or we hear the voice that says, you know what? You're a failure. You're a failure. You have nothing to offer. You're not smart enough. You're not clever enough. You're not good enough. You're a failure and you'll always be a failure. These are the lies that the Jezebel effect tells us. Right? We might not always think like, oh, you know, rejection, I don't know if I deal with that. But come on, we've heard these lies. They come up in our lives. And so the question is, how do we not let the Jezebel effect ruin us? How do we not give those lies the weight that they want to take in our lives? Where do we move from this? So if you go back in the story, God tells Elijah, he says, hey, I want you to go to stand at the mouth of this cave. 
because my presence is about to come by. And when it does, you'll know. So first, this huge windstorm comes whipping through and it shatters rocks, but God's not there. And then, then this huge earthquake shakes the foundation of the entire mountain, but God's not in the earthquake. And then this huge ball of fire comes sweeping through, maybe the same fire that was out on Mount Carmel, and God's not in the fire. And then there comes the sound of a gentle whisper. One translation calls this the sound of sheer silence. And what I think is so powerful about the whisper that comes is that God is setting up this incredible juxtaposition between the harsh, unrelenting voice of the Jezebel effect and the caring, affirming, approving voice of God. And what I think is so powerful is that you see that God is not refining Elijah by showing how big and strong and powerful he is. But rather, God is refining Elijah by the sound of his gentle, caring, affirming voice of approval. It's this word of God, right? It's the word of God, the whisper of God that begins to transform Elijah. It refines him. It shows up and Elijah knows immediately this is the voice of God. The power of God is in the word of God that comes to us. And you know, I, I think for those of us in this room who may have been Christians for a while, I think we easily forget that it is only by the power of the word of God that someone's life is ultimately transformed and changed for good. I think people who are newer to Christianity, they understand this a little bit more because they've recently encountered the power of the word of God in their life and they know that's the thing that's changed them. But sometimes Christians get like trapped in familiarity, like whatever, like it's scripture. It's okay. I'm just coming to church again. You know, I was just talking to someone a week or two ago and they were saying like, I don't really invite people to church because you know what? You come, people are like standing and singing a bunch of songs that like no one really knows. And then some person gets up on stage and they talk for 30 minutes about something that, you know, they might not even believe in. There's no shared values. It's weird. It's strange. Why would you invite people to that? And it really pained me. I mean, on one hand, the guy was basically saying, like, what you do is worthless, Brian, so, like, why don't you find a real job? Um, but if I could step back from taking it personally, the thing that really pained me was, here's a Christian who didn't seem to believe that the word of God changes someone's life. Didn't really seem to understand that the word of God is Jesus Christ. The word who was made flesh and dwelled with us, the word of God who was with God in the beginning. And by him and through him, all things that were made and have been made, have been made by him. And I just wonder, like, if you've been a Christian for a little while, maybe you don't, aren't like explicit about being like, well, church is only good for church people. But I wonder if maybe we implicitly sometimes believe the same thing. Like the power of the, the word of God is good for people who already believe it and are like, you know, whatever, whatever they read and I'll just take it as, as it is. But it doesn't have much for a spiritual novice, right? That'd be weird for them. But I wonder, I wonder if we ever implicitly believe that as well. And there's a litmus test for you, right? There's a litmus test on whether or not you might implicitly believe that. And here it is. How many people have you invited to church or Bible study in the past six weeks? past six months, 
past six years. And listen, this is not a ploy on my part to get you to like bring more people to church, right? Like we don't need a big church. Like that's not the goal. Dirk wasn't like, Brian, these people, they won't invite anybody. We're getting into the summer. Numbers are going to be rough. Can you like, you know, kick them? It's not that, right? Like we don't need Encounter Church to be the most well-attended church. We don't need Provident Church where I'm from to be like the biggest church. What this is is really like me seriously asking you, do you actually truly believe that the Word of God is the only thing that will actually change and transform a person's life? Because if we, if you're a Christian, if we really believe that, I think that we would be nonstop inviting people to experience the spoken and proclaimed Word of God whenever we had the opportunity. So, take that litmus test. And ask yourself, do I really believe that the Word of God is the only thing that will change someone's life? So, back in the story. After there's this gentle whisper, after all of the big demonstrative displays of the power of God, there's this truth that comes along that says only the gentle truth of the Word of God actually has the power to change and refine and restore someone's life. The Word of God does not come to us as a harsh, loud you know, nasty voice like the Jezebel effect, but it comes to us as the soothing, caring, approving, ministering voice of God. And it comes to us in the face of rejection as that gentle voice. And out of this whisper, God can use that to begin to refine us spiritually. But then the last thing you see happening is that God can use that rejection. He can begin to redirect it, right? Your rejection can be redirected. You see, like rejection doesn't have to be something that ruins your life. The lies the Jezebel effect wants to tell you, these don't have to be the voices that you give into. And this is what God is up to. He's digging down deep into what Elijah is going through. And God comes to Elijah and says, I'm going to refine you with this gentle voice, but also I have other plans and purposes for you. In verses 15 through 18, God totally redirects Elijah. Right? I want you to go back the way you came. I want you to go and do the greater purpose that I have in store for you. And so the question that remains for us then is, <laughs> do we see that rejection can be a time of spiritual refinement? And in our spiritual refinement, can we open ourselves up to listen to this voice of God that's ready to send us back out to do the work, the greater purposes that he is in store for us to do as his people? Because you see, God, he has this thing about taking the stuff that people want to reject and then he takes that stuff and he builds a spiritual house out of it. If you look in the New Testament uh, at 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, he says something about the way that God takes these things man rejects and does something incredible with them. In 1 Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, friends, listen. I don't know what rejection you have in your past, right? I don't know who has hurt you along the way. I don't know what you're dealing with right now. I don't know what lies the Jezebel effect is telling that you're maybe buying into a little bit too much. But whatever that is, I want you to imagine it as a stone that you've been handed. Right? This is the stone that you've been handed. And here's the thing about this stone. This stone can either crush you 
or you can build upon that stone. That stone can crush you or that stone can be the very thing that God is going to use for the greater purpose that he has in store for your life and for his glory in the world. Because God is saying there is a living stone. His name is Jesus Christ. He was crushed. He was crushed by the full weight of rejection so that you would never have to be. But even though Jesus was crushed by a rejection, that wasn't the end of the story. Rejection is never the end of the story because on the other side of rejection, there's a resurrection. There's a resurrection on the other side of that. Because Jesus, as the story continues, he is resurrected and God says, you are the cornerstone. You are the foundation on which I'm going to build my people. You are the foundation on which people can take their hurts and place them on me and know that I'm going to do something greater than you could ever possibly imagine with that pain in your life. And friends, if that is who Jesus truly is, then you have a choice to make with that pain. You have a choice to make with that rejection. You can let that stone crush you or you can hand it back. If you look in the story, God comes to Elijah the first time and says, what are you doing here? And Elijah like just lays out his complaint. And then this soothing whisper of God comes along. And right after that, God says the same thing. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says the same thing again. But you know what I think is different this time? I think instead of just like holding on to this rock and being crushed by it while complaining about it, I think Elijah says, here's my burden, Lord. It's yours. You take this because I believe that whatever you're going to do with it, is going to be for the good of your glory. That you are going to do something incredibly powerful with this. It's not mine to carry and I'm asking you to take it for me. And you know, do you ever wonder what the, what the whisper said? Right, if you've heard this story before, do you ever wonder what did God say in the whisper? Now the text doesn't tell us, so let me just share with you what I think it said. I think the whisper came up to Elijah and said, Elijah, I approve of you. And I love you. And I have a plan for you. And I'm going to take this pain. And as you have handed it over to me, and when you hand it over to me, I have great things in store for you. Because I accept you, and I approve you, and I love you. I just wonder who of us here this morning needs to hear that same whisper of God. To come into your life out of all of the pain that you have and say, I love you. I am am fully accepting of you. I approve of you. And if you would hand this pain over to me and you allow me to do the deep work, I'm going to show you this incredible purpose that I have in store for you. So if you need to hear the voice of God today, if you've been asking to hear the voice of God, this is it. I love you care for you. I approve of you. Leave the lies behind. Hand the burden over to me and let me redirect you to the purpose that I have in store for you. Would you stand and pray with me this morning? 
God, it is hard for us to dig deep into the dirt of the pain that's in our lives, um, especially just with the weight that that rejection can bring to us. And God, knowing that there are lies that the Jezebel effect wants to say to us. But God, it is my prayer, and hopefully it's our prayer in this place this morning, that these stones of rejection that have been handed to us, that are weighing us down, that we might just hand them back to you and say, Lord, take this and do what you do. Don't let me be crushed by this. Don't let rejection have the last word, but let the resurrection have the last word. And God, in the spirit of that resurrection, would you now send me out for the purpose you have in store for me? God, may that truth come through clearly in this place by the power of your son, Jesus, in whose powerful name we pray. Amen.